Well, I had a number of names for this sermon. Gave one yesterday. One of the ones I thought of was from one of the first people I learned anything from, Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> I'm going to name this, what, Me Worry? Keep that title in mind. I would like to say one thing more about the veterans. You're a special breed of people. It's not a platitude, it's an observation. In a world where vows are made in a casual way, they don't, the word vow doesn't mean what it used to. A vow is something you kept because you made it, not because of someone else's reaction or behavior. It was a vow you made, and so you kept it. And in a world filled with people who have little integrity, vows are no longer kept these days. Politicians make vows every time they step into the office. The same vows as the military. Most of them don't keep it. Most of them never mean it even when they're speaking words. But the men and women who have volunteered to risk their life for the values this country stands for, not the behavior of this country, but for the values that it lifts up. You're a special group. Many of you have gone to war. On Memorial Day, we remember those who died, who laid down their lives that others might live. On Veterans Day, we remember those who offered to do that, and thank God they didn't have to. The Lord said, greater love than this has no man, that he lay down his life for a friend. Most in the military have laid down their lives or have offered to do so, not knowing who they were laying that life down for, which is even a greater commitment. So God bless you. May he pour out the riches of heaven upon you pressed down and shaken together, that you can't even receive them. You are men and women of honor, and that is a rare, rare thing these days. I chose not to go with what me worry. And just ask a question. The title of this message is, Where is your faith? When man sinned in the garden, he was separated from the tree of life. The tree of life is the light of God's presence. In that light, we found life. And separated from eternity, you know, Adam and Eve had no concept of death before they sinned. It was an irrelevant idea, an irrelevant concept.
But when they were prohibited from coming to the tree of life, they began to die that very day, no longer regenerated by the light of God's presence. And man began to obsess on the day of his death. When is it going to happen? What are the circumstances? They weren't even sure what that meant. What is death? To someone who doesn't know anything about death, what is it? This body ceases to function. What does that mean? They had no experiential knowledge of what the word death meant. That seemed to be all that they started to think about. Man retained a visceral knowledge that life didn't end with the disintegration of this body. And that's not just Adam and Chava. Other men and women throughout the world also understood this body will decay and die, but this, that can't be all. There has to be something more. The Egyptians codified this understanding extensively this idea of life and death in the Book of the Dead. It was the most extensive coverage in the ancient world. And it speaks extensively again of the underworld, the, the dark realm. They called it the underworld because you are put in a grave. You're under this world. It's a place of darkness, shadows, heavy mist, they began to imagine what a man might need when he awoke on the other side of the river that separated the living from the dead. And they assumed this, the needs would be the same. So the wealthy were buried with their riches. Gold, silver, precious stones, pieces of art that they, they loved. One of the saddest movies I've ever seen was uh, a movie called Getty. It's about John Paul Getty, uh, one of the richest men on the planet when he lived. And the only thing I could think of at the end of the movie when he died was, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? See, he didn't care about anybody. Mary and I walked out of that movie theater utterly depressed at the story of such a tragic life. His grandson was kidnapped. They asked for a, a ransom, and he wouldn't pay it, and so they cut off the grandson's ear and sent it to him. He wasn't connected with another human being, but in the last scene of the movie, he's sitting there in this Remarkable chair, leather-covered, ornate, in a room surrounded by artwork. And he goes to the wall and he picks up one piece of art and he's holding it like this and he leans back in the chair and he dies. His most precious possession was a painting, which he couldn't take with him. It was tragic, a life spent gaining wealth 
And in the end, he had nothing. No family around him. Nobody loved him. He affected nobody's life in a positive way. And he died utterly alone with a painting. Mazel tov. Egyptians imagined what a man might need, so they buried these pharaohs and other wealthy uh, priests and such with all this gold and silver and weaponry. and It was ridiculous. The only thing it did was supply grave robbers later with wealth. Others brought this even further, and they started placing coins on the eyes of those who died because they imagined the ferryman who takes you across the river from life into death is going to want some cash for his effort because that's what happens in the world. If I do a service for you, if I, I give you something, I want something in return. So the ferryman, they established the price and the coins were placed. Some years later at Sinai, God gave us his word, the Torah. What is the Torah called? Not the Book of the Dead. It's Chaim, the tree of life. Because the words that God spoke contained the light of God, which brings life to a person's soul. And the realm of light once again began to draw man's souls to it. Now, the primary support structure in Torah is faith. Faith is number one in all the qualities that we have need of to approach God. And I want to take a little more time on the word emunah, faith. I want to look at it more deeply. When believers speak about faith, they immediately turn to Hebrews 11, Faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. But with no context, that definition is insufficient. It's just a verse. Everyone has a faith in something that he can't see. The hunter has faith when he climbs the mountain in search of an elk. He hasn't seen the elk. But he knows the elk is in the Mar Hills. The assurance of his faith comes when he finds some signs, either scat or a footprint, and it reveals the substance of his faith. An elk has traveled this path. And if he's real good, he knows how long ago that elk stepped there, which way that elk is headed. Is he going up, down? He can tell quite a bit. Faith is the force behind every single scientific discovery. A man believes that there are unseen forces that are responsible for various conditions that we can see, and he presses on to discover what is not obvious. And this has led to the discovery of microbes, which can cause disease, as well as the various forces in the universe which we cannot see, but govern the movement of the physical objects we can see and have done so for all, for all the time of its existence. So we discovered gravity and electromagnetics, nuclear energy. All of these things have 
lent a hand into how our wilderness, uh, how our universe appears. <clears throat> a man's faith in his own abilities will provide the mountain climber with the confidence that he can make all the moves necessary to reach the top. The climber who has a perfect faith in his abilities leaves the rope behind. The one who doesn't, well, he takes a rope, because you never know. Faith is present both in those who believe in God and those who do not. The specific faith that is spoken about in Hebrews 11 has a context. It is based on the premise that there is a God and that he is all-knowing and all-powerful. And further, he is aware because he is always there. There's no place you can go to escape the eye of God, the ear of God. He knows. He is aware. Without a faith in the existence of God, we cannot please him. Hebrews 11, chapter 6. We have to first acknowledge his existence. And only then can our actions bring glory to him rather than bringing glory to ourselves. In Hebrews 6, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, through faith and subsequently patience, we inherit the promises of God. Because those promises are not always immediately fulfilled. In the New Covenant, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, all quote Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. They exist. The word there is yehi. It's an existence. The righteous exist in faith. That God is there. That God is all-powerful. But the question arises. Is the faith that God exists enough to please God? Is that sufficient? Scripture says no, it is not. Acknowledging that God exists is not enough for God to be pleased. James chapter 2, verse 19. And for those of you who don't believe that the Lord is sometimes sarcastic, um, you know, listen up. He gave some words for James to speak. You believe God is one? Oh, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. If you don't recognize that as sarcasm, I don't know what to say. Our faith in God must produce fruit for everlasting life. It is required. Paul calls it the obedience of faith. By faith, I believe that there is a God, and I have no doubt. Even though I can't see him, I can see the effect that he has had on my life and on the life of others whom I have met. My faith or awareness of God will cause me to live a certain way. My faith is in the absolute sovereignty of God. Nothing happens without his okay. The question might be asked, did, the did God give his permission for the Holocaust? Yes. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. Can I explain to you why? No, 
I don't know everything that goes on in the mind of God. His ways are so much higher than mine. It makes no sense to me, but that's irrelevant. When I was younger, I used to think God checked in with me before he did anything. I have since come to believe not so much. The demons also believe this. A faith in the sovereignty of God does not separate me from demonic entities. They also tremble at his, at his presence because they are actively fighting against God's will and somehow know that they will eventually be defeated. It's visceral. They know somehow, by intuition, whatever it is, they know. This extraordinary hardness, you know there's a God and you fight against him. You know he's sovereign and you still fight against him. That kind of hardness is found in man too. In Revelation 16, they were seared by an intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. And they refused to repent and glorify him. They knew it was God sending these plagues that were causing them such distress. And rather than repent, they had two choices. Repent and ask for forgiveness or get even harder. And they chose the latter, and they cursed the name of God. Remarkable. When I read that verse, it scared me the first time I read it. It still scares me. The fruit of faith is obedience to the one in whom we have faith. It's such a duh moment. I really believe God exists. I really, truly believe that. And I believe that he sees everything I do, and therefore I seek to do things, the things that he tells me to do, and refrain from what he pro prohibits. It's a fear of the Lord. As Hebrews 6 reveals, we inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. Well, a great place to look first would be the father of the faithful, Avraham. At first, Avraham's faith in God was Tom. It was perfect, simple, childlike. Follow me to a land that I will show you. What did Avraham do? He got up and followed God to a land that he would show. Simple, childlike. Leave everything you know and follow me. However, later, Abraham's faith began to wane a bit when he didn't see what he was hoping for in Genesis chapter 15. God had promised Abraham a great deal from the very moment he called him and throughout his life, God kept making these promises. Abraham's response to the promise made in Genesis 15 shows a total lack of faith and a frustration with God. I'm going to give you all of this. What are you going to give me, seeing I have no child? Everything you give me, my only heir is Eliezer, 
my servant. And it will all belong to him. I have no son. I have no legacy. I have no one to carry my name. What are you going to give me? It's a bold answer to God. Abraham's faith did not produce enough patience to wait for God to fulfill his promises. And so he laid with Hagar, who gave him a son, but not the son of promise. Hagar gave him Ishmael. And this developed into a conflict between the descendants of Ishmael and Yitzchak that lasts even to this day. And it has brought the world to the precipice of war. After God fulfilled his promises to Abraham to have a son from his wife Sarai, his faith matured and he began to believe in such a way that his faith began to bore fruit. After God gives him Yitzchak, he commands him to take Yitzchak and sacrifice him, kill him. Not just outside the camp, three-day journey. So he has time to ponder this for three days. It's quite a test. The miraculous birth of Yitzchak to an old and barren woman revealed the faithfulness of God and his promises. All you got to do is wait. And everything that I have spoken to you will be fulfilled. Abraham learned that lesson. This is when he began to seek the kingdom of God in earnest, knowing that God would provide for him. What is Abraham's reaction when God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him? The next day, Abraham woke early in the morning to do everything that the Lord had commanded. That's a complete turnaround from the attitude of, what are you going to give me? I have no son. All of a sudden, he trusts God the life of his child. I have seen this progression of faith in my own life. When I was young, I continually told God how I wanted him to behave in every situation I found myself in. Now I mostly ask, how do you want me to behave in the situations I find myself in? My faith has grown. The latter attitude is more in line with the life of Yeshua. After making his request, request, what does his words state? But not my will, your will be done. You, you tell me what you want me to do. I do nothing on my own initiative. Let me hear your words, tell me what you want me to do. I also rarely worry about what I need to live. I rarely seek riches. Board of trustees, I asked, <laughs> I asked my brother, um, you've never really met anybody like me, and he went, no. I don't seek food, clothing, shelter. These are the things the heathens seek after. 
I seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And my faith tells me that God will supply all of these other needs, the food, the clothing, the shelter, etc. I don't think about them. I'm just as a... My wife will not like this statement, but I am as content living in the duplex as I was living out on 320 acres on the plains. I miss the sunrises and the sunsets. But when it rains, I don't get wet. That's shelter. When I'm hungry, I eat. That's food. And I don't care what you think about my clothes. They're mine. I don't tell you how to dress. Stop telling me how to dress. Every morning I awake early to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these needs are met. And I give thanks even when those needs are not met precisely the way I want them to be. God does not always answer my prayers on how to provide the food, clothing, and shelter. How do I know he has provided for everything I have need of? Because I'm not dead. There are many times in my life I thought I, would, I was going to die. I'm not dead. So God has provided me with everything I need to live in this physical universe. If you're not dead, God has provided. And if you are, raise your hand so we can remove you from the sanctuary. <laughs> what are you doing here? When I cease to have that attitude, my peace departs from me. And I begin to worry. And I have learned that worry is an utter waste of time. For you ruin the day you're in and the day you're worried about. The Lord was quite clear. Don't worry about today. Or tomorrow, excuse me. Live for today. Suck the marrow out of this day. Find the joy. Find the blessing. Exploit every single opportunity to you, that you are presented with today. Tomorrow has sufficient evil of its own. I know what's coming down the pike. I have a book that tells me in detail what's coming down the pike. I don't worry about that. It's coming. And there's not a thing I can do about it. What? Me worry? So each day I try to find the joy of that day. I try to laugh. I try to rejoice. I try to bless somebody with something. And I look for somebody who will bless me. That is a soothing ointment for the soul. Let's bring heaven down to earth. There's a lot of fear these days. Many are anxious, not knowing what's going to happen. Frankly, 
I know what's going to happen. I don't need the details. That's not, as my generation used to put it, a cop-out. It's not. I don't want to know the day of my death. If I knew the day of my death and the circumstances, that thought would consume my life. And with every passing day, I, know, I would know I'm one, one day closer to the time of my death. I don't think about it. It's not relative, because I'm alive. Of course, what is going on in the world today is a bit scary, on one level. Amen. Since the attack on, of Hamas on October 7th, the day that will live in infamy, last week after my last message, is giving, my last message giving the, the history of this conflict, I gave 4,000 years of history in 35 minutes. You think that's easy? Okay, it wasn't detailed. And people are worried. They called me, they spoke to me person to person. And they're filled with fear. And it seems like this world is sitting atop a pile of gunpowder and everybody is smoking cigars and flicking ashes. And one stray spark sends the violence that fills this earth into an explosive state and demolishes everything. Many wanted to know for some reason if I was worried. You're white. You're a Jew. You're a believer in Yeshua. You're everything they hate. I'm going to get me a t-shirt. I am everything you hate. Yes. <laughs> the answer to the question of whether I'm not I'm worried, no. I'm not worried. I prepare because I'm not a fool. The signs of the times, we can tell the seasons. I pre I'm, I'm as prepared as I can be. And that relieves me of all worry. I'm not worried about it. This really isn't my first rodeo. I was born shortly after the time World War II ended, when the entire planet was engulfed in a state of war, when we entered the scariest time in human history, the nuclear age, we actually developed a weapon that had the potential to end life on this planet, other than cockroaches, mazel tov. <laughs> unbelievable, of all the things that are going to surprise. So a cockroach is apparently in the mundane universe worth more than, never mind. We watched on the TV as these immense mushroom clouds devoured everything in its path. A fervent heat that burnt everything down. 
a shockwave that exploded things, trees, boiled the oceans. I lived during the Cold War when the threat of nuclear war was on everybody's mind, when the, the faith of the world was to send our progeny, our children, under an oak desk to avoid being incinerated by a nuclear blast. If you want to learn how not to trust the world, there you go. You see a fireball coming, get under a flammable object and hide. Who wouldn't think of this? Me. I'm under there. I'm playing with the marbles and other things because in 1962, while I was studying for my bar mitzvah, the most poignant and important part of my life to that date, we're in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. In a word, things were tense. The frequency of those air raid drills increased dramatically, and I think I spent most of my, my time in school under the desk. I grew up in times of trouble, and those times of trouble are always with us. It was Yeshua's promise. In this world, you will have trouble. Certainly that is accurate. In my concern that the voices of Islam are crying out for the death of Jews and Christians. So when have they not called out for the death of Jews and Christians? Has there been a time? Of course not. America is a relative newcomer to this reality. It has and is happening all over the world as we speak. Our brothers and sisters in faith in Yeshua are dying every single day for their faith in Yeshua. Jews are dying every day because for no other reason except they're Jews. And even if you try to appease and equivocate those who hate you, you can't because it has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with who you are. If you bear the moniker Christian or Jew, you are hated, irrespective of any action you take. And you are marked for death. Hitler didn't care. Please, Mr. Hitler, we're, go we're good Germans of Jewish descent. It's a pathetic plea. Hitler could care less. The operative word is Jewish. And they occupied the same camps, regardless of what they did. I've never counted up the amount of conflicts Israel has had, but I, I suspect I've been to most of the physical conflicts in Israel over its history since 1948. And each time, death had the opportunity to visit me and did not. The reason is very simple. 
It was not yet my time. Ecclesiastes speaks of Mo'adim, appointed times. There is an appointed time to be born, and I had nothing to do with that. And there is an appointed time to die, and I will have nothing to do with that either. That has been set. The day of my death was set at the moment the day of my birth was set. And unless there's some kind of a Hezekiah prayer and you get an extra 15 years, that's the day you're going to die. And it matters little. That's why I have very little fear on a battlefield. When that appointed time comes, you're going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're on a battlefield or going shopping at Safeway or King Supers. Irrelevant. That's the day you're going to die. There was a wonderful movie that portrayed this. I remembered last night as I was preaching. It's called The Tom Time Machine, and it was a modern remake. And it was very good. It's very good because it agreed with me. Uh, I'm revealing my narcissism. So... The man who developed the time machine had, had a woman he loved. And they were walking in Central Park, and they got mugged. Oh, how different. And the woman he loved died. And he invented the time machines, and he went back to that date. And he scurried her along from the place that she died by the hand of that mugger to another place, thinking, now she's safe. And a runaway carriage came and hit her, and she died. And when he got back to his own same time, he was talking with his friend, and his friend said, well, go back and, and take her from there. Why, so I can watch her die a thousand more times? Excellent. Excellent observation, if you believe Ecclesiastes. That was the appointed moment of her death. Where she was, irrelevant. I don't look for death, but neither does the fear of death govern my behavior. I believe in God and have the same faith as my father Abraham. He is able to raise this body up. I have preached this a hundred times over the last 40 years. The greatest power the enemy has in this life is to take this life from you. That's it. To murder you. But Yeshua overcame death. After his physical body here was extinguished, he rose up. The grave couldn't hold him. There was no victory in the grave. It didn't stop the salvation that God sent to this earth. The grave couldn't hold him. And I really believe that. It's not just words I quote. That is a belief in the deep recesses, in the folds of my soul. So death, where is your sting? Does the grave here have any victory? No. 
I won't be there long. Does this attitude remove all fear from me? Hardly. The man who fears nothing is either a liar or a fool. But my fear is quantified and qualified. I fear God first. The one who has power over life, not only here, he has the power of life and death in the world to come as well. I fear man's second. Therefore, I seek to not have God angry with me first. And my seeking to avoid confrontation with other men is a, is a distant second. Am I all, always successful in maintaining this mindset? <laughs> Hardly. Reason is simple. My faith is not perfected yet. But I can mark the progress of my faith. Seeking God and his righteousness first consumes more of my time now than when I first believed. There are many times when I have started preparing the message early in the morning so I could be about the business of the day and have left the business of the day because that time in the morning was so precious and so many ideas flooded in that I spent the rest of the day studying on the topic that I began in the morning. And the rest of the day will take care of itself. God's righteousness in me is not perfected, but it is increasing. Every trial I endure is an opportunity to choose to believe God, even when the consequences in this life are dire, to choose eternity over survival in this world. When my brother Greg was alive, he said to me, you know, with all your training, you should, you should run a class on surviving the end times. I said, uh, I'm a bad choice to do that. He said, why? Because surviving the end times is not my goal. So I'm really a poor, poor choice for this class. My goal is to live well, even in times of trouble, to maintain my testimony of faith, to maintain my light, surviving here, so far peace from where my faith lies. The circumstances of this world are becoming tedious. How did one 17-year-old girl put it? It ain't all that in a bag of chips. Amen. Besides, if one dies here for his faith, the second death has no power over him. He won't have to give an account for every idle word that he has spoken. He will not have to give an answer for every wretched action he has taken. What a blessing for some of us. Now, this does not represent a flippant or cavalier attitude. It is an expression of faith 
the most faith that I can muster in one who truly believes that God is there. The faith is that God has called me to a certain path, survival here, not the goal. To believe in the power of the blood of the Lamb, to bear a testimony of the blood of the Lamb, and to not shrink from that testimony even when faced with the death, with the death of this body. I believe the words of Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame the beast because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life even unto death. That's how they overcame. Now I'm aware the words I just spoke sound strangely familiar. Peter spoke them long before I ever did. Though all others forsake you, I will be with you even until death, blah, blah, blah. The difference is my words do not draw, draw their power from a faith in my own strength and courage. I am well aware of the weakness of this flesh, especially as I grow older. I do not have the strength to resist the onslaught of evil. I speak those words without any equivocation. My faith is in the power of his blood that was shed for me, that in the day of trouble, God will show me the grace to stand before the onslaught of evil. I believe my God will save me. My strength can fail, his never will. And I place no restriction on the time and space of my survival. He may hide me and be with me in a secret place here. He may take me up and hide me in a place prepared for me in his house. The how and where is a small consequence. The fact that he cares for me is more important to me than how he cares for me. He knows best. I actually believe that. The world sees this as fatalism, a capitulation, a, a surrender to my circumstances. I see this as faith and hope. This life here is not what I hold precious. My hope is for the life to come in the fullness of his presence where I can bask in that light with no care, no burden, and find shalom, peace. I'll leave you with this. Anything you put before God weakens your faith in him. And that extends to more than just physical possessions. Country, family, friends, of the believers, anything that you put before God diminishes your ability to follow God. That's what Yeshua meant when he says, if you put mother or father, husband or wife, children before me, you're not worthy of me. That's exactly what he means. Abraham did not put Yitzchak, whom he waited for and loved, before God. He loved God first. God said, sacrifice your son. And Abraham went and sacrificed. 
to sacrifice his son. The faith that endures is a faith that Father knows best. If that is your faith, your final words after every request to him will be not my will, but your will be done. Your fear of God will increase and your fear of man will decrease. Don't fear what's going on in the world today. It has never left. It has always been and it always will be until the day our Lord returns. We live in times of trouble. It's always been this way. The first action outside the garden was murder. Take your rest in him. Find a peace that passes all understanding. And the Shema, God is there. God is with you. And he will not leave you nor forsake you without any relevance to the situation you find yourself in presently. In that condition, there is no power this world holds over you. Father, in Yeshua's name, all praise, honor, and glory to you. Open our eyes that we might see, to behold you with us, our ears to hear, that we might hear the words you speak to us. The darkness is growing. Let the light in us grow. Let the light of this neshama, this soul that you have breathed into us, would at least push back the darkness that surrounds this body. And that the peace of your presence overwhelm us. Let us find that, that place of hiding in the shadow of your wings. In Yeshua's name, Amen.